0: Welcome to the Different Strokes for Different Folks workshop. Before we get started, could everyone turn off all their cell phones and electronic equipment? This session is being taped. Anyone wishing to share will be required to sign the speaker's release form before sharing. To protect anonymity, no photography, audio, and or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent region two or overeaters anonymous as a whole. My name is Amy. I'm a compulsive overeater and your leader for this meeting. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the difference Okay, I will now read the promises from the big book of um, from the book of alcoholics anonymous. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in ourselves and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. The format of this meeting is as follows. Three speakers will share for 15 minutes each. Then an ask it basket will be circulated for 15 minutes minute question and answer session. We will then have open sharing as time allows. Once again, the topic of this workshop is different strokes for different folks. And our first speaker is... (laughs) Okay, our first speaker is Bill. (laughs)
1: Good morning, my name is Bill and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. Um, they asked us to to talk about to qualify as a recovering compulsive overeater for a couple of minutes and then to to talk about the topic today and and um, I suppose I should uh, I, I will confront the issue of why is an old white guy talking on this panel um, because uh, I know that that, you know, just looking at me, I come from Northern uh, European heritage and uh, um, I'm a man, although that's kind of diversity in, in a way, in a sense, but uh, um, I will get to that. So just let me talk a little bit about why I qualify as a compulsive reader first and, and then I'll go on and talk about the topic. Um, I've probably always been a compulsive reader My family kept a baby book. And at about six months, I, my father wrote in the baby book uh, next to a picture of me taking a bottle. Boy, can he eat? And uh, I think, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that was maybe genetic. Um, maybe it was just something that was inside of me. I don't know. My, the rest of my family is not compulsive overeaters. Um, they were, uh, but, but there were people who were in, in other parts of my family. But my immediate family is not compulsive overeaters. Gee, I wonder if we could get the the sound turned down. It's a
2: live
1: violin. Oh, it's live across the way. Oh, somebody's playing across the way. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, so the I know I was a compulsive overeater looking back on it because I was the kid who put sugar on his sugar frosted flakes. Uh, it was, I, they weren't sweet enough for me. Uh, I was the one whose favorite food was um, cinnamon toast with lots of sugar, you know, white bread, cinnamon, lots of sugar. Um, and you know, that affected me as a kid, I was, I was up and down in weight uh, and, and I tried a lot of different things to stop and uh, they all worked for a while. Uh, and then they would stop working. And it wasn't until my health got affected that that I found Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, I was in. Um, I started getting dizzy spells, and they I couldn't explain them, and they were bad enough so that when I would get out of, uh, I would have to stop the car. I, they would attack while I was driving. I'd have to stop the car, get out, walk around. Uh, clear my head a little bit before I could go back in. Went to doctors for about a year, trying to figure out what this was. They gave me things that, that helped for a while, and uh, finally, uh, a doctor that gave me a glucose tolerance test and said, uh our, and said, "Well, after that, well, you're not diabetic, but you could become diabetic very easily. And what you need to do is you need to lose some weight." And he gave me a diabetic food plan, and he said you also need to get some stress out of your life. And he gave me a prescription for Valium for that. This was this was many years ago. Um, so I started following the diabetic food plan, but I knew that wouldn't be enough. And uh, I was living in a small town in Ohio. And about two, three weeks after I'd started this food plan, uh, the uh, there was an announcement in the paper that a group of Overeaters Anonymous was forming. I didn't know anything about Overeaters Anonymous. I knew it was somehow related to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know quite how. I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous worked. And so I called up the number in the paper. I also kind of liked the idea that I could be anonymous because, because it was a small town. I didn't want a lot of other people knowing my business. And I called up the paper. I called up the number in the paper, and it turned out I knew the person who was organizing the group. So there went the anonymity <laughs> right at the beginning. Um, but I went to a meeting uh, that was uh, held on the first Saturday of August in 1977, and uh, they had a speaker from AA there who spoke for an hour and a half, and uh, I didn't identify at all. He was very different from me. Uh, but uh, one of the things he did for that hour and a half was talk about the steps and how he worked each step individually, and I did identify with that. I said there had to be something more than just simply following the food plan. There had to be some kind of a program, and this immediately appealed to me. So I kept coming back. One day at a time, I kept coming back now for almost 30 years. And and I've been abstaining from my binge foods uh, for that period of time. So um, I found out as I've been coming back that the goal of the program is to have a spiritual experience and to continue to have a spiritual experience. And I've had that in many ways. Terrell um, talked last night about about how you don't really figure things out until about after the first 10 years. (laughs) And and I was thinking about that and I said, you know, that was just about right. Uh, Because because it was about 10 years uh, into the program. It was actually more like 11 that I started to figure things out. Um, I worked the steps to the best of my ability. We were a new group. It was a group of all newcomers. All we had was literature to rely on. Um, We Discussed endlessly the points of the program with each other, and and we ended up um, we ended up growing, we ended up prospering. And but I didn't really get going on the program until I lost weight. Uh, but I really couldn't get going on the program. as feeling good, but I, until I actually got around some people who had some experience. Uh, I tried writing the fourth step. It didn't work. I tried several times, and it didn't work. And finally, the reason I figured out was that I hadn't really had that spiritual experience. I hadn't had the start of it. Um, I can go into much more of that in terms of how I worked the program um, uh, later on, but because I need to transition to uh, the other part, the part why this old white guy is standing up here um, in the panel about diversity. Uh, You know, one of the reasons why the fourth step wasn't working was I had a secret. And I didn't want to talk about that secret. And the secret was that I was gay. And, in fact, I didn't get to it in my first inventory. Um, I, I got to a place where there was better recovery, where there was more people with time, and found a way of writing the inventory and had a spiritual experience that kind of led me to writing the inventory. And and, I, uh, and I, it was really a pretty incomplete inventory. You know, I mean, it was OK. It was what I could do at the time, but I gave it to a priest. Um, I had a year of in the program with, you know, just kind of talking to people in my group. And that's what I continued to do. I found a home group when I moved and, and I talked to people in that group and, and listened to what they had to say. But, you know, sponsorship was just kind of this really weird thing that I that I couldn't get into. Um, so I found a priest who was in 12-step was in fellowships and made a, a ministry of, of uh, hearing fifth steps to give, to give away uh, my first fifth step. And I was following a format. I went through the format, and uh, when, and I read through the format to him when I, giving it away. And he, he's, we got to the part where it said, list all of your resentments, and I hadn't done anything. And he said, "Are you sure you don't have any resentments?" And I said, "No, I, I don't think I. I really don't think I do. That's why I, you know, I, I've been this good kid, and you know, I was the best little boy in the world, you know, as 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 a young gay boy growing up." Um, and I didn't want to tell him that. Uh, so uh, he said, "Don't you resent your parents just a little bit?" <laughs> and I started to cry, you know, and I knew that that I hadn't gotten. As far as I needed to get in terms of working the program, so I moved again. I moved out to California, uh, and uh, and I again established a home group, and uh, and decided to write another inventory, and again didn't have anybody to give it to. So I went to my home group and I said, I have an inventory done. I I'd uh, I'd like to to give it away, and. This little old lady who was sitting next to me says, Oh, I your inventory. And, <laughs> and this is not the person I wanted to give it to. But <laughs> but I said, well, when, okay, when do we want to do this? And she said, oh, I'm giving service at a meeting this afternoon. Why don't you come to the meeting and then we'll do it afterward? So I did, and we sat in her car. And that was probably the first time I told somebody that I think I might be gay. And... And I hadn't really ever revealed that to anybody before. Um, I grew up in a in, in a household where it was definitely not okay to be gay and 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 in a household where it, that was very controlling and I had an alcoholic father and a very controlling codependent mother and it was just not okay it was not okay and i and I being the best little boy in the world had tried to live up to my parents' expectations. I had tried to date women. Women were very scary for me. I had a very controlling, codependent mother, and you know, she made women very scary for me. Bless her heart. You know, My mother did the best she could. Uh, but she married an alcoholic, not knowing that that's what she was doing, and figured it out really early, but she was already pregnant by that time. And she stayed in the marriage until my father died. Um, I, but as a result... Uh, women were very scary to me. Um, I had been rejected a lot as a, as a kid in sixth, sixth grade. When you know my friend had to had spin the bottle party, and 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 the girl when I spun the bottle, the girl it pointed to didn't want to go out with me. And um, you know, I felt like um, it was I was pretty bad. You know, I was a bad person. I was not a worthy person. I would not be worthy of having sex with anybody not be worthy of having sex with women so I I didn't you know so I became sexually anorexic as well as a compulsive overeater and you know I found that that's really common that happens a lot uh, in this program is that 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 people eat to cover up sexual anxieties or they are already fat and figure nobody will uh, will want them sexually and so consequently they eat some more and it drives it, it drives the eating um, and then on top of it, I was trying to be straight <laughs> and, and that was not working at all. You know, I mean, when I first lost weight in the program, um, I had a woman who pretty much barged in and to me and, 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 wanted to be my girlfriend. And, um, I did have my first sexual experience with her and I liked her very much, but, but, you know, I moved away and, and so it ended and, 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 and after that, it just wasn't working. Well, it took um, ten years in the program, giving a lot of service, and I ended up on a marathon and retreat committee at, for the intergroup and actually, I was on a retreat committee for a local meeting, my home meeting at the time, and they had a retreat for what they call double winners, people who were who were recovering in o a and another program and I didn't qualify because I was you know not. I was not in in, in any other program. I was trying to do everything. I heard, you know, work on all your problems in OA. Work on all your stuff. You get to work on everything um, eventually, but you don't have to do it all at once. But you do have to do it sometime, eventually. So I I was was serving on the committee, so I went to the retreat. And I came away from the retreat thinking, I need another program of, of some sort. So I went off to another program that dealt with family issues, and I went in particular to a meeting that was for OAs who were dealing with family issues at the beginning, and then that kind of branched out. And I finally wrote another inventory, and and I wrote an inventory that was closer to the way the Big Book said to write it. I'd done a lot of studying and gone to Joe and Charlie's workshop, and 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 I was able to finally write it the way the Big Book says. Says to write it, and so I, I still didn't think I had any resentments. But what I just did was I did have feelings. So I wrote down everything that I still had feelings about, and I did it the way the big book said to do it. And it was the longest inventory I ever wrote. Um, and what I identified as part of that inventory was I was using, um, I was using pornography. Uh, I was using it. At first, in a healthy way, in order to kind of get through my my fears about sex. But it became unhealthy after a while. And eventually, I ended up going to a program to help me deal with, with the pornography. And I, that program potentially could deal with the sexual anorexia, too, except that you can't just abstain from sexual anorexia. You know, it, 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 it has to be part of a healthy sexuality. So... So the way I work my program today, as a gay man, uh, is is that I try to accept who I am first of all. That's been a long process. I think it's mostly done. I'm you know I'm mostly very comfortable in, uh, with being out, very comfortable with, with interacting with people. Um, I also accept who who I am in terms of my age, the way I look. Uh, because I really can't do anything else. I tried for a while, you know. I beat my head up against the door of, of trying to be attractive to other gay men and found that, yeah, I am attractive to some people, but there's a lot of people I'm not attracted to. And, and, and I had to accept the fact that, that yes, I'm, I am anorexic in this area. And I'm okay, I need to be okay with that. Um, after coming out, I did start to have sex. And I've, I've, start, I've had more sex... Uh, since in recovery, then I much more sex in recovery than I've had before that. I've never had a relationship. I've had a difficult time with that. Um, I don't believe I believe that uh, God's will for my life today is that I'm not in a relationship. I don't believe that that's necessarily permanent. But I'm 60 years old, going to be 61 years old uh, in, uh, in in September, and. You know, and I, yeah, I look okay for 60 for 60 years old, but you know, <laughs> but um, but you know, but it hasn't happened, and I have to accept the fact that it may never happen, and so what I have to do is find a way of living my life in a healthy manner one day at a time. So now I have a sponsor, I call my sponsor every day, I work the program, I I. And I try to keep myself looking as I exercise. I try to keep myself looking as as attractive as I can, and I try to get through the fear that still exists around around sex and sexuality. Most of the time, I can. There's sometimes I can't. Uh, I'd be really happy to talk about this in greater depth with people in the question period. Thanks for letting me share.
0: Thank you, Bill. Our next speaker is Lucy.
3: Right.
4: Okay, yes. As we announced before,
0: you can ask questions, just keep passing it around, and we'll read them at the next section.
2: Okay. I need this
5: or not? Okay. I'm um, Lucy, you also a reader. So, uh, for the grace of God, I'm here uh, today, Saturday, and um, invite me to um, speak. So, for me, it's an honor being in the convention. And yesterday, I was the secretary in one of the meeting, uh, Spanish meeting, And I just feel like an honor. And because I just have this disease, terrible disease, it is like a coming to the meetings and put the disease in his place. And continue with my life. It is why I'm here instead of just overeating in all the places and deal with these people. They're hanging around. So um so anyway, so there is three minutes for a share about me. So um somebody asked me about how I just met the program. And I said, you know what? I started in 1992 in Tijuana and with uh, this, uh, they call N8 Banana Narcotics it is neurotics anonymous. they call here like emotional, emotional people, not emotional, nah, they don't know how to handle the emotions, so I was there, but I just, hear out know, myself always talk about the food, I say, you know what, it's difficult because I want to eat and on and on, so the people, they say, oh, again with the food, oh, talk about the food, why you always talk about the food? <laughs> <laughs> and, I say, and they say, you can and somebody is recommend me, just once a month or once a week, but don't talk about the food every day because I go to the meetings Sunday to Sunday. Every single day at 7 o'clock I was in the meeting. So I never miss a meeting. So uh, I do it for years, I don't know, three years. And I just find a good recovery, emotional, and all this stuff because I was taking a lot of pills, got a lot of craziness. So and I just find a solution and, and I was living and I was living so happily. I made the, my de- depression go away. So I just and I believe that twelve step program works. So uh, it's and I just find the program because I was just uh, listening to the radio and somebody mentioned about oh we're gonna have a meeting and anana and by all the public and anana and so I was. When my mother, and my mother said, turn off the radio, let's go to buy some tacos, why are you doing it? I said, you know what, I feel like I need some help inside myself, I always feel, was, since I was little, like seven years old, I always think I need some help, I always feel like I'm sick, disturbed, emotional, spiritual, lonely, craziness. And I always feel like I, I need something, but my family they they think they were fine, but I feel like i am and you know what because I feel like I, I'm sick, I think I was the help in the in the family now I believe that so anyway, so it is how i started and i and uh, and then moved to uh Shilavista the same, the same kind of meeting and uh and somebody uh one of the days somebody. I went in the meetings, they say, I'm looking for, uh, this overeaters and animals meeting. I said, what's that? The person who overeats, oh really? Ah, uh, don't look in that kind of meetings. You stay here because it's a bad And uh, So <laughs> a person left. So, but it's like a, oh, there is a success uh, program? So one day I feel like I couldn't stop overeat. And then I just remember lo years ago somebody just passed by and asked for that program, and I said, "Oh, okay, so I was to the uh the book, the yellow pages. I don't know where I'll find it, but I just came to coronado and and feeling good and stay for a while and leave, coming back, whatever." So um, so anyway, so now I just, in May 2000, I decide, for the grace of God, be abstinent. So I'm abstinent since then, and I just feel my life, it's, um, it's a different story with that. So anyway, that's the introduction. So now it is like I say, invite me to say, okay, that it's uh, different ethnic, different people for different places, whatever. And I said, "What should I share for that? <laughs> Who am I So uh anyway, so I like a um I just praying this morning, and I said, "What should I say for them or for me?" And I said, "Well, uh the only thing I want to say is my story, and my story I just uh grew up on my love in Tijuana. And, uh, but you know what? That is, uh, became for a very dysfunctional family. So, uh, you know what? It is like a, my mother crossed the border before I was born. So she was probably three, four months pregnant and lived in San Bernardino, California with my aunt. She doesn't have papers, anything hiding inside the house, whatever. So, and, uh, she lived all the pregnancy over there in San Bernardino, so, and I was born in San Bernardino. And then, so the first time I opened my eyes were in San Bernardino, California. I was for 20, uh, 15 days, and then whole family come back to Tijuana. And I just go to the school in Tijuana. I work in Tijuana. ever was in Tijuana. But I just find out I have a papers. They said, well, you were born in the United States, not in Tijuana. I said, wow, that's good. <laughs> but uh, my father, he was afraid all the time. Alcoholic, but not drinking, not active in drinking, just in the evening, just a little bit. He has got all the bottles every night, one bottle, a little bit, one bottle, a little bit, like a 10 bottle. So I said, well, he's not an alcoholic. So, but anyway, he suffered a lot of fear, and he said, you know what? All the families stay together in Tijuana because United States, it's the devil city. You know what? It's a lot of drugs and a lot of craziness people. And and, and he has three daughters, my other two uh, sisters and I, and he needs to protect the daughter. And do you wanna? <laughs> And not let you do anything at all. And a lot of controlling. Just, cl- just work very close to the house. Don't go anyway. Just stick here. So very crazy. So, um, wow. So anyway, when I say it's like a how I find the food, well, if I said I have a problem with the food, that's, if you talk about just the food, I feel like that's not right. If I talk about just the emotional problem, I think it's not right. For me, that's like a everything combined. It's like the food, it's not the food, it's the emotion, it's not the emotion. But you know what? We were very poor family. We don't have enough. Never. So just a table and one chair. That's it. How can I just compost it over here when we don't have money to buy food? Okay? But I was feeling resentful because my dad always buys one liter of milk for him and that's more for, no, one liter for whole family and that half of the quarter for him. I start feeling so resentful against him since I was little. Why he has more milk than me? <laughs> why he has more food than me? Why and why and why? So I start hating him. So it is how I start feeling. Now with the program, I just find out. just six, seven years old. <laughs> I just feel so angry because they have more food than I. Other people, they have more food than me. So they send me with my aunt. And they have just one pancake, two pancakes. I said, why? They don't give me more. I always resentful with the food. Why they don't give me more? I need more. A lot of pancakes, not just two little tiny ones. What is that? It? So it, that is what's my resentful. So I just grow in and on, and So I come back here in the United States. And somebody mentioned yesterday about that uh, contagious disease. And I said, yeah, that's true. I was very contentious for other persons who I was dating with. So the first thing is, uh, when I, I was working here, I was just finding a boyfriend and he told me, you know what, there is a place. Oh really? Yeah, they have a happy hours if you buy only one drink and you can eat everything you want. I said, really? Okay. So, uh, he take me at La Jolla. Uh, I don't know what the name of this uh, hotel. So we they were dancing. They had the happy hour three to four, and we had just one drink. We have more, I think. And and we can take anything. So we were having the the afternoon, whatever, and the lunch, everything. They had a lot of stuff. So it is like a, I said, well, wow, that's good. So and then I just they didn't want somebody else. And we spent the hours in the buffet. I don't know if you in that time to have a buffet, if so I think just one. And I said, wow, I spent hours in buffet I just and have the lunch and find out we would stay until dinner. <laughs> talking and talking and talking and talking. So and pretty soon I just became doing the same thing they were doing, these people. Yeah. And I just had it. I, I cannot say it because they have it, I don't have it. It's because I just had it and I have a good connections with them. Well, we are in the place all day long. You know what? Hours, since, uh, 12 o'clock until 8 o'clock, in one place, in the restaurant, I think that place is not except in Chula Vista. So, um, so um, for a minute. So anyway, so that's how my life, uh, being um, living uh, uh, around the food, and we uh, be, became a... Now I find out, look, I had a papers and I can leave it here. And to one I saw of, with no money, no food, no nothing. And then I start working. I cross the border. I can see the difference over there. I work like a 48 hours, not much but like my job I had. And I was working that supermarket. I run the food. I just holding the food in and taking and passing the food everywhere. I just living there. And I was like, how can I? find another job is not that we're around. Oh my God. And then I find a place in the recycling center and then I just came to the program and I suffer a lot talking about how can I resist and live one day at a time in that place if I want to eat and the only thing I see it is cardboard, wires, boxes, papers, plastics. <laughs> but I see food. <laughs> so, well, so anyway, so that uh, has been uh, my life, and Tijuana, I haven't anything, and wanting more, and then come in the city, they say that it's, uh, here, the meaning thing is the excess, excess of food, excess of money, excess of credit cards, you can have anything you want, just want it, just sign it, and you have the money, it just go to the, here the bank, and just, put just few numbers and you have money and uh, that's it. And they say, wow, there's a the dreaming, the Mexican dreaming, United States. Come with there's a lot of people crossing the border because they think everything exists excess and we don't have over there anything, just living poor. But now it is like, a, I don't, I'm not here because I want the excess. It's because I feel like a, I belong here and now I'm with my people. And because I guess like I was born here and uh, and enjoy whatever other people have. It's like, a, I just, like if I go to the the parks, they have a beautiful park. I don't have to feel like I had to own the places and take it to Mexico. Like a lot of people say it. Like my husband, he said, oh, you stay there and uh, work a lot and make a lot of money and bring it here. I said, I don't think so. I don't want to do that. If, if somebody invite me to her, to their house, and they have a beautiful house, you know what? I enjoy it, and I don't feel like I want to have it. Like a, it's okay. They can have it. They can have it, whatever they want. I just enjoyed and um, and having a better life. And uh, and for the program, I just feel like I'm doing a lot of stuff now. I'm studying. I uh, pretty soon I'm gonna graduate. And, and just for the program. You know I'm studying at MA, Medical Assistant? And I, for the grace I God and because I have a sponsor and doing and practice the steps, I receive an honor and I receive a student of the month and i receive receiving a diploma, the perfect attendance every month. And it, it's just because I have a sponsor. Because I have, when I have a difficult with, uh, instructors, I talk about it with my sponsor in going to my school. And, and, and studying a woman with 47 years old. Looks good for my age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
5: and um, start taking classes. Yeah, because the immigration took my husband away. It is two years ago, and now he's there. I'm here, and I have an 11-year-old daughter. And I had to find out if they living a the depression and eating, I had to just, okay, be alive. Awake. I'm 47 years old, but it's not the end of the world. Okay, find, a, find something to study, find something to do and work and everything. It's going gonna, gonna to be possible with the steps, traditions, group, programs, people. You know what? I'm not alone. He is there. My husband is there. Probably going to divorce because a lot of stuff. <sighs> but for the grace of God, you know what? I can feel the freedom and the happiness. I just, you know what? I just feel different. I just feeling inside myself. I just feel something different. So, thank you. I think it's already three minutes. So, thank you, everybody. So, I hope. Thank
0: you, Lucy. Our next speaker is Angela.
6: Everyone. I'm, I'm appreciative too for the volunteers who've made this panel possible. I've been in the program over uh, 21 years. I count my abstinence day, January 1995. Uh, so approximately 12 years I've been abstaining from food obsession and compulsive overeating. My size has varied during those periods of time, but I've never escalated to my top weight over 208 pounds. And I'm very committed to program, committed to abstinence, and very grateful for Roseanne's selfish act of creating trajectory that allows all of us to be here today. Thank God she's alive today. I haven't heard from her, but um, I want to start my, my uh, gratitude list at the beginning. The convening of this type of a panel is something I've always been interested in, uh, having been in a fellowship for such a long time and being of color. I'm aware of the potential of Overeaters Anonymous. I know that it's, um, as Bill W says, who could any then imagine a society that could broach every class and conceivable character, race barriers, cultural barriers. That's in our future as an organization as we grow. Back on track, I'll qualify. I came to Overeem Anonymous, uh, as one of our panel members described. It was in the papers. Uh, I'd been looking for it for a while. My mom had already diagnosed me with an eating disorder. <laughs> it was funny. She could see some of my characteristics of ex- excessive exercise. At one point, uh, when I was fighting with her, my drug of choice, which was this, this sweetened product with uh, low sugar, I was no- almost killing her because she was about to throw it out. <laughs> she, she looked at me and said, she's my baby name, Renee, and said, Renee, they're talking about you. You need to go see this. And this was about anorexic and so the excessive exercise. I'd run up to 10 miles a day, and running was my method of um Counteracting compulsive overeating so that I wouldn't gain any weight. And so she was one of the first people that listened to something on the radio and said, you need to go to that. You need to go to that. Indeed, I went to this organization that was dealing with uh, actually bulimia. I've never purged or vomited or used glasses of diuretics, but exercise was probably my method of purging from a, a binge. And at that point, in that meeting actually, it was Jackie Varelli. She was focusing on Christians' with uh, bulimia. I heard for the first time Overeaters Anonymous. It took me two years, but those two years uh, allowed me to finally walk into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous in Arizona in 1986. I walked into a room of people sitting around the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were reading that like a Bible, much like some of the things I, I, I are endeared to me from my childhood. Uh, and I stayed and I heard what I needed to hear. I found something I've been looking for for a very, very, very long time. Some sense of Uh, Something, some pattern to my eating that it was not, I was not alone. There had been something. Someone had coined the symptoms and found a pathway back. At that point, I walked into the room. I was never, when I went to in the very first time, I was about the same size I was now, if not 10, 20 pounds lighter. I didn't come in as a person struggling with obesity. It was more compulsive, overeating, the obsession of the mind. There wasn't a thought, a day that I wasn't uh, in recrimination of what I'd eaten or a method in purging what I'd eaten. There are points I set on a couch, and I chose a really good thing, fruit juice sweetened um, cookies. Isn't that good, you know? Whole grain, organic flour. But you're not supposed to finish the whole um, two-ounce bags of them. It was more like the 16-ounce bags of them. And there are points that I ate where I never tasted any bit of the food, never one bite of it. It was as if I was outside of my body. Those are typical symptoms of binge eating, which they coined finally. To be a term for a compulsive overeating today. I, I can't recant count any eating to that fashion. I haven't. I've had weight gains, weight losses, but uh, I've never returned to that type of uh, eating. I, I have meals and I enjoy them and I monitor my my portions. Now onto why I would be on the panel. I loved everyone speaking. Um, <laughs> uh, Bill and it, it, it's it's the, uh, young looking guy there. That was wonderful to hear you share and Lucy. Uh, Yeah, I wonder (laughs) about my place in OA. There are points when I lived in Los Angeles and I uh, was in the throes of the disease and I look back in hindsight thinking of some of the founders of the organization. Susan B was back in the early days as was um, David H. They've both been in my position. I'm the region two trustee. It's an honor. I'm the first probably African-American to be the region trustee. First African American to ever be on the Region 2 board. And that's history, and that's also a sign of the growth of Overeaters Anonymous. Susan B. and David H. are outside that demographic. And I used to tease them. I said to Susan, Susan, in 1960s and 70s, when you were down there and Overeaters Anonymous was being founded, and I lived in Long Beach and you were in Torrance or L.A., how come you didn't come get me? You know, I could have used that program. And this is what I want to address today. To our the best of our abilities, we try to be as loving and kind. In a passage in Overeaters Anonymous, the 12 and 12, which is published rather recently, always finally has its book, the 12 and 12 of Overeaters Anonymous, and it was published in 1990. And the reason that possibly Susan and I didn't really interface directly may be in this passage on page 129. Uh, okay, let me make sure I've got the right passage here. It's it's actually tradition too Uh, and I'm turning to that now, it's actually page 119. It says, it is an axiom of human society that wherever there is a power struggle or structure, there will be a power struggle. This seems to be true even in organizations made up of well-intentioned, idealistic members. Many of us, when placed in a position to do so, will fight for mastery over our fellows, even as we speak earnestly in favor of equality. In OA, however, there are no power offices to hold. Instead, a power structure. We have a service structure. Let me say that more in, in continuity. In OA, however, there are no power services to hold. Instead, a power service structure. The officers of our board found an OA just only to do service. But I'm basically saying, there is a tendency for all of us, even though we say we're here just to be with other compulsive overeaters, just to sit here and identify at that level. But unconsciously, we are enticed by people of our own social economic advantage who are in our own class. Susan and I are in different classes, and that's one of the reasons possibly there hadn't been outreach to my particular group of people. Uh, Recently, those things have changed dramatically in the Fellowship of Ories Anonymous, who will be publishing our first pamphlet directed towards the African-American. We've had ethnic and cultural diversity at the highest level. The Board of Trustees has employed uh, cultural competency trainer, cultural inclusion trainer. Um, Many African Americans are finding, people of color are finding it. We have more outreach towards language. We have provisions that allow translation of certain literature. What we're trying to move towards is everyone asking themselves, am I here, am I enticed by a cookie? A cookie is a, a metaphor for on the internet in the day of cyberspace. If you go to a website, the cookie allows you not to type in the laborious task of all your information. And that's why you keep going back to this website. You go to Amazon.com, it says, hi so-and-so, we know you like this, this, and this. So we have a, sh- a sugary sweet enticement cookie of social economic advantage that brings us into the fellowship sometimes rather than the fact that we're compulsive overeaters. That's a challenging thing to say but primarily I'm coming to this event because I know I'm going to be with someone who may look like me, who speaks like me, who comes from my background, shares the same economic advantage with me instead of the fact that they were equally laid low to my common level with the disease of compulsive overeating. Am I holding on to my social standing? There are passages in the 12 and 12 of Overeem Anonymous that says, even though OA is a great fellowship and we've got a lot of friends, it can't become a social club. It cannot bring us here to just chant with our friend and leave that outsider like I was down in Los Angeles, Susan not doing anything about me being there suffering the disease. Um, That passage is in the in the 12 and 12 of Overeaters Anonymous. That's what I'm doing. Am I chastising the fellowship? I've always been a person in my years of service that challenges the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous to look in depth. Are we allowing character liabilities of preference to keep out some of the most groups suffering with the disease of uh, compulsive overeating? The statistics say that uh, African Americans, Hispanics, and, and uh, people of Native heritage are really writhing uh, in the diseases of diabetes hypertension. These groups have yet to broach our borders in the effect that's successful. Do we look inside to check to see, do we have anything to do with that? <laughs> are there uh, signals that we're sending? What do we really want? When we come into the rooms of Over Edus Anonymous, are we certain that we've put down any liability of character that might be Serve as an uh, obstruction to other people coming in. What are we sending out unconsciously? And that's a challenge. It's a challenge, and it's written all through the 12 and 12 of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and um, OA. What do we really want to send? What signals are we sending? Uh, I always like to think on the positive side. Again, I'm a testimony to OA can work. I'm a testimony. Thank you. I have many people in our new intergroup, it's the Ebony OA intergroup, um, whose stories will be published in a pamphlet. Laverne, the intergroup chair, is a woman that struggled for years with shots, diet clubs, almost 400 pounds. Today, she's released up to, uh, 200 pounds, nine years abstinence, uh, and as a testimony, she won't let any sisters in fellowship ever, ever rationalize a compulsive overbite. And she, I like her, her tactic with a lot of people she encounters when she's sharing the the news of the fellowship with other people. She says she'll tell you, you know, if you don't want diabetes, you don't want hypertension, follow this plan of eating. And if they don't take the plan of eating, she'll give them their um, final funeral plans. Here, have that. I'm not going to talk with you anymore. (laughs) I like that. Um, There's um, another woman, Juanita. Juanita, 100 pounds overweight. In her 60s, she found the fellowship. She is abstinent, has has maintained that weight struggled through life-threatening illness and is doing well today. Uh, one of my shining examples is a person who came to our wonderful Region 2 fundraising convention last year in Oakland came in in a wheelchair and today is very amble, able to walk on her own. She's released quite a great deal of weight, got beneath uh, 300 pounds and swears by the program. I was just on the phone here with her today and she told me to make sure she, I get her a t-shirt before I leave. Uh, testimonies of how when we see the compulsive overeater, regardless of their background, how the miracle salve of the 12 steps can reverse uh, addictive diseases. This is my—I have a little poem that I've said and I've written about. And I said that a miracle happened when a millionaire millionaire interrupted um, by John Barleycorn uh, found a spiritual experience. He had a religious experience in birth the 12-step fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. And that miracle salve of the program is not locked in a medicine cabinet. The more we open that miracle stab out and apply it to ourselves, the more we reverse addictive diseases. The only thing that I would say about this miracle stab of the 12 steps is that it was never meant to be held selfishly in the demographic of its founder. Bill W. said it himself in uh, When Infancy Is Over, that exactly when the fellowship or when World Service recognizes that the founder and the grassroots founders eventually sweep aside the others and we make way for new leaders and new things. We open broad our borders to allow everyone with the desire to stop overeating into our fellowship. With that, I'll close. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Angela. Okay. We'll now have... Our speakers respond to questions from the ask it basket for 15 minutes. Would you like to read the question or I can read it and you can
1: I think we have to come up here because I I think yeah, I can see the microphone that's going back yeah, there. So they won't hear us if we <laughs> if we're not up here. Um, the question to me was, Bill, as a gay man, who do you seek as a sponsor, um, and, and how do you avoid doing? How do you avoid the thirteenth step? Um, and as a okay. Um, and, and how do you, and I guess this is the second part to the question, I mean, this is kind of a notational question, but, uh, I'm interpreting it as, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, okay, uh, as, as, do you perceive yourself in, in the program as being a threat to straight men? Um, and do you see yourself being non-threatening to women and, uh, and non-threatening to lesbian women? Um Okay. Um, well, first of all, in OA there aren't very many gay meetings per se. Uh, there are a few. Uh, there was one here in San Diego when I first arrived about six years ago. Uh, I did go to it uh, because because I thought it would be a comfortable place to try to get to know some people in the program and. Um, and I also thought, you know, it would be a comfortable place to try to get to know some people, just in general, here in San Diego, some some gay people here in San Diego, in a in a uh, non-bar, non-threatening, non-sexual kind of kind of situation. And uh, uh, the meeting was very small, and, and I did get to know a few people, and in fact picked up a sponsee from from the program uh, from that meeting, who who has stayed with me on and off, very sporadically. Uh, in the six years I've been here. Um it, uh, but my experience is that, that there are not very many gay or lesbian meetings, uh, around, uh, in OA. And I don't know that, that that's that it's necessary that we have them. Um, I, I think that, uh, that most lesbian and gay people, boy, I'll go out on a limb on this, uh, you know, feel reasonably comfortable interacting about topics that aren't necessarily directly related to their sexuality. When, when we get to, to, sometimes we do feel uncomfortable sharing in places where uh, uh, what's called in the trade heteronormality is, is assumed. In other words, it's assumed that, that heterosexuality is not only the norm, but is the right thing, and that being lesbian or gay is deviant, and that, that does tend to threaten us. Um, my, in my own story, there are some gay men who are, who are completely non threatened to women and have a lot of women friends. That was not my experience growing up. My experience was that women were very threatening to me. And so I didn't have a lot of women friends. I had, did have a lot of uh, – I did, always had one uh, good male friend, one close male friend. And that's a pattern that's really gone on with me throughout my life. I've always had one close male best friend. Uh, oftentimes I've been attracted to that person um, and sometimes that person's been straight and sometimes the person's been gay but it's it's always ended up as a friendship um, am I a threat to, uh, to straight men I haven't experienced it in no way I've experienced straight men as 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 being uh, very welcoming uh, if I'm especially if I'm out uh, if I it, because because if I start doing something in terms of eyeing somebody in a sexual way, and, and I'm out, they got to know that that's what I'm doing, you know. And if they don't want that to be going on, then they can tell me that, or they or, or they can walk away from me, you know. And, and and it's okay. So personally, I don't feel that way. Sponsor, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I did hesitate about about picking sponsors. Um, it's difficult for a man to have a woman sponsor in o a, and of course, there are many, many more women than than there are men. And uh, what I did to solve it in the very beginning was make the group my sponsor, and that kind of continued. I mean I had when I lived in in uh, minneapolis St. Paul then my after my first year in the program from that small town in Ohio, um, I had one special woman in my life. I always I called her my spiritual connection. I never called her my sponsor. I never asked her to be my sponsor but I called her my spiritual connection. And uh, this was a woman who I heard at a region convention when I first arrived, and I really identified with what she was saying, uh, particularly her program, and I went up to talk to her after the meeting. And, and I ended up uh, 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 going to the meeting that she went to every Saturday morning and, and having her there as my connection. Uh, and Jean oftentimes showed up in my life when I needed her. Uh, at one point, she arrived at my apartment in Los Angeles um, on her motorcycle, wearing her full leathers. Uh, she was kind of in crisis. Asked if she could stay for for about a week, uh, and I, I I said fine, you know. And, and basically, she moved into my spare bedroom for a week. Um, but she was uh, she was she was in F, in essence my first. My first sponsor. Um, I asked another. I asked a man in LA to be my sponsor, and never called it. That's sort of been my pattern: is I'll ask, I'll get up enough nerve to ask somebody to be my sponsor, and then I'll never call them. I did have a woman as a sponsor in LA, um, and and I and we stayed. That relationship kept going for a while, and then she went out and and ended the relationship. Um, here in in San Diego. Um I did ask a man to be my sponsor, a straight man, uh, and and he, whose program I admired. And and he was perfectly fine with it and I didn't call him. And it went on for about a year. That I, I would see him at meetings and I'd say, Oh, I need to call you and then I didn't call him. And finally I I the reason I ended up becoming more comfortable calling him was I had another man who I'd known in Washington D C when I lived there, um, who Now lives in LA and who asked me to be a sponsor. And, and he said, I want, I need to call you every morning, every weekday morning. And he has about 20 years and, and it turns out that yes, I can help him. And yes, there is stuff I can share with him. And it's, uh, he's straight. Um, but, but he asked me knowing I was gay and, um, and he's, it's, um, it was such a good relationship. He worked such a good spiritual program that I said to myself, you know, I really need to call my sponsor. And the only way I'm going to do it is if I call him on the same kind of thing. So I went to uh, the man I'd asked, and I apologized for not having called him. I said, I want to start calling you every day, every weekday. This is what's working for this, this sponsor of mine. I'm going to try it. Is that okay with you? And he said, yes. We set up a time. And I've been doing it. One day at a time, I've been doing it. And it's great. And actually, he oftentimes talks more than me. <laughs> because we kind of share what's going on with each of ourselves. But uh, uh, I, he, he and I have very, are very different in many ways. He's been married a long time. He's much more conservative politically than I am. and and uh, And yet, he's very accepting of me and very loving of me and says regularly to me, I'm so glad you're in my life, I'm so glad you're calling me every day. And, you know, to me, that's what this program is all about, is, is, is being accepting of diversity, being accepting of difference, and, and helping each other to, to recover however we can. And I've been blessed with having, always having that in, in my program. So, long answer, but thanks for the question.
6: advantages of serving at the World Service level as you have the the breath of a fellowship and um, there are very many, many gay and lesbian meetings. As a matter of fact, at every convention on uh, every um, uh, region two conventions and also at World Service Convention, they always convene the gay and lesbian meeting. I was just back at uh, the conference and they had a very large gay and lesbian meeting. New York, uh, San Francisco, there's still one gay and lesbian meeting. Not to contradict, but in reality, uh, again, if you uh, if you're on a global network, you get to hear and see what's happening in other countries, what's happening uh, as I say globally. That's what I wanted to say. Um, they're very strong. Actually, it was probably um, the, the policy within the Fellowship of Bereans Anonymous, which is called a uh, special focus, probably came from strong advocates uh, who were gay and lesbian who felt that there should be something provided within OA policy. For groups to meet convened of people with similar attributes is what the policy says. The idea of having a special focus group is to address the reality of um, oppression in society. For that one hour to one hour and a half, some of the things that are uncontrollable are suspended in that. And that policy is 1994, uh, B. I believe. And I have the policy manual if you ever want to see it. <laughs>
0: Do you know what the time? Five more minutes? We
4: have five more minutes, panel will answer questions. Okay.
0: We can continue to pass the basket around if there's any more questions. Otherwise, we'll now have uh, three-minute shares. Please focus on the topic of uh, different strokes for different folks and finish your share by the end of three minutes and because we're being taped you must sign the tape release uh, form before sharing which we have up here
4: hello i'm frank the reader Hi, frank. um I, I ran into the thing of trying to find a sponsor the same thing the meetings that i would go to in the south bay area um i go to the meetings and it would be nothing but women and when the first couple months went by and i realized i needed a sponsor um I started asking, I go, where are the men in OA, at least in the South Bay Area? And what they pointed me is at this meeting in Lomita that had some men. And it was like maybe 30 to 35 people would go to this meeting. And when I went in that, that day, the first time I went in, there was like three guys. And there was like a really old guy, a really, you know, overweight guy. And then this guy that looked like kind of a slob and I'm going, oh my God, this is my choice of my, you know, this is going to be my sponsors. Um, The way I, I I left the meeting before the end of the meeting that day. I came back the following week and I, I, what I did is I did something like I used to watch it. And when I go to school, the smart people used to sit at the front of the room. So what I did is I said, okay, whichever one sits closest to the front of the room, I'm going to ask to be my sponsor. And that's what I did. And it turned out to be the old guy. But what I wanted to say is that the the person that was the old guy has, like, 30-plus years in this program. And I didn't know that when I asked him. And this is the thing, you never know who's the people that are in the meeting. The person that I felt was the, the heavy guy, the fat guy had already lost 300 pounds. And I didn't know that. I know him now, and I talked to him on the phone. And the other guy I've never seen again. And one of these days we might our paths might cross again. And he might look at me and go, oh, I don't want to talk to that guy. That guy looks too fat or whatever. Hopefully, he'll stick in the room long enough that we can make an, a, a connection. Because this is the one thing I found in these rooms, is that the one thing I've been given is the gift of identification. And I usually can identify with anything anybody talks about, the good or the bad. I know I felt that way. You know. Um, and it's just, it is a gift, and I'm just uh, happy I got it this morning I'm here. So thank you.
7: My name is Ali, and I'm a compulsive reader uh i uh came to the program in nineteen eighty four and have been absent since eighty four and uh so that's about twenty four years or so um highway of two two eighty five um and uh when i saw the uh name of this program, i was immediately attracted to it and um I'm grateful that uh that this this particular meeting is is uh being held um I, 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 I would characterize, uh, my own uh, story as having, uh, come to OA in 84 and probably for, uh, some 17, 18 years in OA as having an self-identity as a white male. And I would say that that identity, and since probably 2000 or maybe 1999, 1998, these things kind of evolved slowly. That identity has shifted and transformed into uh, uh, a... Uh, a person of color, that self-identity, who is a Muslim. So, uh, and, and that, that slow transformation um, has been very interesting. Um, and, um uh it the character of o a has shifted as i've shifted and um uh so so learning it's it's almost like relearning how to be in o a as a muslim who doesn't identify as white and it's it's actually more lonely than I could have imagined. I mean, it's not a path that I had set out. I mean, when I say I came in as a white identity, um, what I mean by that is I did not think the word Ali was particularly ethnic, and um, that I I felt and believed that you saw me as white and as non-Middle Eastern. That is probably in my imagination, that you probably thought of me as blue-eyed and blonde hair. That's kind of how I would characterize it. And um, it was surprising to me in 2001 that people would come uh, up to me after, uh, after the Twin Towers and ask if I felt safe. And I thought to myself, but I thought you thought I was blonde hair and blue
0: eye.
7: You mean to say that you always knew that I wasn't white, <laughs> blonde hair and blue eye? It was, a, it, was a, it was an amazing moment in my life and uh, the beginning of this journey. But it, it is, it is only uh, my sponsor, uh, who had been with me for 23 years and still is my sponsor. We've drifted in the last, two years because during one of our chats he said something like you know Ali um, all Muslims aren't terrorists but all terrorists are Muslims and I thought to myself it's going to be very hard for me to talk to this man who has been my sponsor for 23 years and has saved my ass I got married with him through him I went back to school through him, I got a doctorate through him, I went on dates through him, I did I lived day in and day out through him and all of a sudden it was an alien moment. And it's hard for me to talk about being a Muslim in the program and about this path, this transformation. And it's it's a very lonely um, there is not like you were saying, there is not a lot of gay there's there's not a lot of Muslims out there, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, and and it's hard for me to come out to my own group and say hey, I'm a Muslim. Now, by coming out, I mean it's like basically people start asking me different questions, you know, what do you think about what's going on in the Middle East? All of a sudden, I'm an expert in the Middle East. and... <laughs> Uh, rather than what you think is going on in OA, you know. Um, so I just wanted to talk about it more for me because I've been in the closet with it for some four or five years. And um, um, and there are fat Middle Easterners out there, but why aren't they in OA, you know. Uh, and I, I have some ideas about it. But um, anyway, thanks for letting me share.
3: Hi, my name is Bill. I'm a convulsive eater Hi, and I want to, all you people who are not from San Diego, welcome to San Diego. It's such a beautiful town. I'm a native. and was uh, born here 64 years ago, and they named a hospital after me. When I was born, they looked at me and they said, mercy. Yeah. Anyway, I'm on a school bus, and that's unacceptable. Uh, uh, so happy to be here this morning. And, and talking about sponsors, when I first came into the program back like in 1985, uh, so after I came in, I went to two beautiful women and said, You want to be my sponsor? Uh, no. <laughs> what do you mean, no, I need a sponsor? No, not me. I ain't got a sponsor. You get out of here. I said, damn, you know, they didn't like me. But it was a wise thing, because I had other things on my mind. And then they, they sensed that. I remember asking them, what will you do if someone says, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat. They said, we tell them, go out and eat. And when you're done, come back. And I said, thank God you're not in suicide prevention. You know, jump. Yeah, go for it. Can I have your stereo? After after about seven years in the program, I finally got a sponsor. And uh, just backing up a little bit, something that really got me and stunned me was when I hear other members talking about, oh, so-and-so was my sponsor. Boy, that person is really messed up. And they told me this and that. How could you do that? How could you ever break that trust? You know, my God, I would never ask that person. I, mean, I finally I got a, a, a lawyer. And this person, I figured he'd take my secrets to the grave, you know, because he's a lawyer. And he was a wonderful person. And uh, after seven years in the program, I finally got a sponsor. And wouldn't you know, just shortly thereafter, my 30-year marriage crashed. And, boy, I was ripped. But it turned out God had sent me someone who had been in a long-term uh, marriage who suffered the same uh, thing that I did. And then walked me through it just so gracefully and just, just such a wonderful experience. And then, for whatever reason, it uh, it ended, I mean, the, the relationship with the sponsor. And I thought, uh, you know, just God provided for me. God provided for me when I needed it. And, and that, was, that was wonderful. And just one last thing about the uh, uh, the Muslims. I, I wonder about the Christians. If people says, what do you think about what's going on in Palestine right now? And then, what the hell are you asking me for? I'm a Baptist. Well, what do you it What, it? what, it? what, it? what it the Palestine? I don't know, I, I don't know. But anyway, that makes any sense.
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm Anna and I'm a compulsive overeater. Oh, and I really wanted to come to this meeting. Um and I you know, I wanna talk about what OA has done for me in the area of um accepting other groups. Um I think it's normal, you know, for us to want to stick to our own group and have fear of other groups. I you know, and I, I uh I have to say that because I was raised in a in a kind of a bleeding uh liberal kind of family that was very hypocritical and we always talked about UNICEF and, you know, how wonderful everything was. And um I followed that, I my first husband was black you know I thought oh, that's the way to go right and um I didn't realize how hypocritical I was in myself until I had an incident where um there was a black gentleman who came in and asked to use the bathroom at where I worked at and I wouldn't let him in and the janitor came in he took one look at me and he just pointed to the bathroom and I it was like the light bulb came on in my head, that I was so segregating how I treated other people, how I saw other people. And that was such a tough thing. And um, ironically, I've come into OA, I have one sponsee who is a black woman with a bad attitude and I'm a white woman with a bad attitude, so (laughs) it's worked out really well, but the one group that I have always had the most fear of was black women, because I had a really hard time having a black husband. I heard a lot of crap about, you know, every direction on that topic, and uh, I was so intimidated. I don't have a fast mouth or that head bobbing, you know, whatever, and I would just get run over all the time, and... um, Since I've been in this program, somehow I have started to see everybody as the same. And I will talk to anybody. Um, I'm in another program, and I went to a panel in South Central uh, for Alcoholic Unwed Mothers yesterday. And I felt at home. And I am not intimidated by my, you know, mule-headed tough sponsee. And I know what to tell her because I'm the same way. And that is a miracle to me. And I am so grateful because I'm coming closer to that family ideal of respecting diversity that my family and me just pay lip, lip service to. And it's something that we always have wanted. And I'm very proud that my attitude has been able to be changed. And I really give credit to this program. And the principles of this program for that. Thanks.
8: I'm Louise, a compulsive overeater. Uh, I can't, obviously I'm white. <laughs> uh, I have no, no, I don't like to say this. I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I am, uh, very conservative, if that's the right way to say it. But the fact is I'm a compulsive overeater. And that's what binds me to everybody in these rooms. And it when when I first was in OA, I'd say the first year and I saw the difference I thought, Well, this is strange. And then I got to thinking, So am I <laughs> but uh i'm a compulsive overeater that's the bottom line it, maybe maybe somewhere else i can the line could change i don't think so with me anyway but uh and i just have so much in common when i look at the similarities and not the differences and there are so many similarities and I really want to keep that in mind all the time the similarities I don't want to look at the differences uh, I think in that respect maybe I'm a Pollyanna I don't know <laughs> I, I, I kind of like being a Pollyanna right now <laughs> I, I don't want to look at anything else but then I've never experienced What a lot of people, uh, who are of diversity experience. But I want, I want to, I want to look at just the similarities of being a compulsive overeater. We have a disease. We need, I need to arrest mine. And many people can help me. I obviously cannot help me, but the big book, the program can help me. And if I look at all of the differences, that gives me an excuse to eat. And I don't want to eat
6: or, or overeat.
8: I, I, I want to be in recovery. Thank you.
0: Thank you, everybody. It's now time to close the meeting. Let's thank our speakers. Everyone. Also, everyone who shared. And our timer. Thank you, Frank. Okay. For those who care to, please stand and join hands and close with, I put my hand in yours.